Good job. Amen. I love hearing the children sing the Lord's songs. Such a blessing. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 tonight. Psalm chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up, to get to Psalm chapter 2. Pastor, uh, uh, Pastor Farnellis said that on Sunday nights it's rather casual, not so uh, stringent on time. So, you know, he doesn't want to say take as much Take as, preach as long as you want, but uh, he's like, that's, that's kind of how it is. And so don't worry, I haven't gone over two hours yet. So, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've gone over two hours a bunch of times. No. <laughs> no, we, don't worry. Uh, we, um, one of the things that's uh, great about being a Baptist is uh, he also promised to take us out for uh, food afterwards. So I'm hungry. So I don't know about you. I mean, uh, we're, we're going to get through this, but... Um, Psalm chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and, and uh, I, what I want to do is, um, I wanna, obviously I want to preach this, I want to preach from the Word of God, but I want to just share something that's on my heart. Today has been a wonderful day for me today, and um, I just want to share, share with you all a little bit about what's been going on as we've uh, been on deputation here, and uh, just the blessing that it is to be here today and to be in this, this area in Seattle, and and just to talk about it a little bit, my, um, my father, he lives here in Seattle. And um, he saw his grandchildren for the first time today. And um, I, I haven't seen him in, in 10 years. It's been over 10 years since I saw him. I saw him for the first time today in 10 years. And, and uh, my father, his, uh, his, life, he's, his life was ruined by alcohol. He's been an alcoholic his entire life. And um, we were estranged. Ten years ago, ten years ago, as maybe you saw in the video, my family and I, we, my wife and I, actually, I didn't, we didn't even have the family yet. My wife and I, we moved to Cincinnati, and I moved for a job. And shortly after that, he moved uh, from also from Northern California up to the Seattle area, and uh, he's lived up here ever since. But he's been um, homeless. He's uh, again, he sometimes he got a job, and then he would do all right, and then he'd go back to the bottle, and then he'd lose everything, and he'd live it on the streets. And today, I, I was talking to him, and I didn't even know this. But a year ago, about a year ago today, he got hit by a car and uh, could, could have died. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, he's got problems now walking because of that. And, and I'm like, Dad, I never, I never knew. No one told me. He's like, yeah, I didn't tell anybody. I'm like, oh. you know, I didn't have any way to get a hold of him, uh, to talk to him. And uh, finally, through the providence of God, uh, we managed to, um, to meet up at the, at the church that we were at uh, this morning. And... Um, just to share a little bit about that, the last time I saw my dad was in Pizza Hut. I was working in Pizza Hut, and uh, he'd just gotten out of jail, and he'd done time in jail for, for uh, I think, a fourth DUI, and um, he looked terrible, and he was starving, starving hungry, and I remember I was so mad at him. I was so mad at him because of just everything that he was doing, and our, our whole family life just fell apart at that time in our life, and... Um, but he was hungry, and so we had a pizza. We had an extra pizza that somebody hadn't picked up. And I remember, distinctly remember, it was a Supreme Pizza. If you've ever had a Supreme Pizza from Pizza Hut, I really like them. They're really good. Not that I'm selling you guys Pizza Hut. I could care less. But, uh, so uh, I gave him the pizza, and he ate, like, the whole thing. It was like a large pizza. I mean, he devoured it all but, like, a couple of slices. He was starving, and I remember him, you know, thanking me. Thank you. That, that was really good. 
And as far as I can remember, that was the last time I saw him. And I talked to him a little bit, and, and I was like, Dad, you know, you got to straighten stuff out. And he's like, oh, yeah, things are going to be fine and stuff. And we ended up moving to Cincinnati, lost contact with him. And um, a couple of, uh, couple of uh, maybe, maybe last year it was, I got a job at Pizza Hut again. I had to get a second job. We had, some, had to get our finances in order, and I got a second job. And, and I was a delivery driver, so I was supposed to deliver pizzas. Well, I ended up getting thrown on the make table somehow or another making pizzas, and, and I made a supreme pizza. And the memory of my dad came back to me. As I'm thinking, you know, I've been saved now for about seven years. So it was ten years we moved to Cincinnati. I've been saved for seven years, and... And uh, the, you know, the specter, I guess you could say, of my dad has haunted me. And it's been a tough thing of dealing with it and having to forgive him for things and having to work through it and having to ask God to forgive me for, that, for the anger in my heart. And thank, praise the Lord, you know, he's helped me and I've, de- and I've dealt with all that. And so to get a chance now to see my dad and to come and see my dad today was a huge blessing. I don't, you know, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to get a chance to go and to see my dad. And, and so... You know, we got to the church, and, and he came in today and uh, saw, him, saw him for the first time, and he's meeting his, his children, and, and, you know, we had to get to services and stuff and, and preach, and I had to preach and, and uh, preach a message, and after it was done, you know, I, I mean, here it is. I haven't seen my dad in 10 years. I don't know. I haven't, haven't had a chance to even talk to him or anything. You know, we had some pleasantries at the door. How you doing? How you been? How's stuff like that? And, um, and I wasn't going to let this moment slip, and as soon as we were done, I went over to him, and I said, Dad, are you saved? Because I've been praying for my dad. I've been praying that the Lord would save him. I've been praying that for, for months and months. The Lord really laid it on me heavy. One of my friends, his dad was like 89 years old or something. His dad was older, had dementia, stuff like that. And he'd been praying for his dad for 22 years to be saved or something like that. And, and he'd finally given up hope. His dad had dementia and Alzheimer's. He's like, my dad's never going to get saved. And finally, one day, in a moment of lucidity... He's sitting down with his dad. My friend, he led his, Lord to the, his dad to the Lord. He led his dad to the Lord. His dad got saved. And as, as, I, as he's telling this, I'm like, that's great. And, and I started thinking about my dad. And it just really, the, the burden for my own father fell on me. And, and I prayed. I prayed to God. And I felt like God had given me great assurance that he was going to save my dad. So today, I talked to him. And I told him, I just went straight to him, Dad, are you saved? And he looked at me and he said, yes, I am. So I was like, Dad, when did you get saved? And he said it was after the car accident, after the car had ran him over. And he said how he had finally, you know, he'd come to the end of himself and he'd come to realize and see himself for what he was, a sinner, deserving of hell, deserving of punishment, but that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. And he, and he put his faith in Christ and just being able to, to stand there and to talk to him and, and to weep with him and, and to tell him I love you. I love you, and I'm so thankful to God that he has given me this, this chance to come and to, and to see him. And so pray for my dad. He's still recovering. You know, sin, while there's forgiveness from sin, and, the, and there's, you know, there's forgiveness in terms of uh, the, the penalty of hell has been paid, there's still consequences for sin. And he is still dealing with consequences of his decisions and his sin. And so uh, pray for him that uh, he will get a chance to get, get kind of back more on his feet. He's still, he's living in um, a program, some sort of homeless program thing right now. Uh, that car, I guess he was back on his feet until he got ran over by a car and then he lost his job and lost the place he was living and ended up on the streets again. And so, uh, but, uh, but praise the Lord, he answered my prayer. I, I begged God. I begged God and I pleaded with God and I prayed and I felt great assurance that when I got here, 
that either my, my dad would get saved or that he was, you know, that he would, had been recently saved. And, and so the Lord answered my prayer. Go figure, right? God answers prayer, right? Go figure. And so you guys are the first ones who get to find out about that. And so I'm sure I'll put that in my prayer letter and stuff. But, so let's get to the, to the uh, I just had to share that. Thank you so much for allowing me to, to share that. I couldn't go through this sermon without saying something about that. But here we are, Psalm chapter 2. We're going to be Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Let's uh, read this, and we'll get right into this. And this is what my sermon is. It's a textual sermon, so it's going to be all three of my points are going to come out of this verse, and uh, we'll see it. It's verse number eight. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And so the title of my sermon tonight, Ask of Me. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing. Dear Father, as I come to you tonight, as I bow to you here in prayer, I'm so grateful so grateful for everything that you've done in my life. How you've, call, you've called my family and I to go to Thailand. Uh, you've saved my father after I've, I've prayed and prayed and prayed. You've restored my relationship with my father. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. What, what else more could I? I mean, I, I'm at a loss for words, Lord. I'm at a loss for words of how good you are. You're, you're so good in your goodness. I pray, Lord, that you would please just help me. Help me to focus right now. Help me to... Get control of my emotions. I pray that the word of God would leap off the pages, that you would please meet with us here, that the Holy Spirit would take control of the, of the service, that you would, please, Lord, open our ears and open our hearts to receive the word of God. And I thank you, Father. You know that we are but dust. We're nothing. We, can, we can't do anything. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. That's what he said. Without me, you can do nothing. And so I pray, Lord, that we would abide in Christ tonight and that your will would be done, and that we would be obedient to it. Thank you, Father, for everything you blessed us with. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. I want to take a look at this really briefly. I'm going to work through this quickly because, again, like I said, I'm hungry, so I'm ready. But, uh, you know, I don't want, I'm not going to deal lightly with the Word of God. But here we go, Psalm chapter 2. Notice verse 8. I want you to notice two verses. Uh, obviously, we know the context, what this is talking about. I believe this is talking about um, uh, uh, the, uh, Jesus Christ setting up his uh, millennial kingdom. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back, and I believe that he's going to rule and reign for a 1,000 years. And uh, so what I think I see, though, before verse 8, we see verse 6, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And somewhere in the New Testament, I can't remember where it is off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But somewhere in the New Testament, somebody, whether it was Peter or Paul, alludes to the fact that this verse is talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Or they directly say it, I should say. And so we see here that that verse, I believe, is talking about his first coming. Christ came the first time. It's Christmas time. We all know this. Verse 8 then, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Verse 9, I believe, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I believe that's talking about his second coming, when he's going to come and he's going to take charge. And uh, when he comes back, I like what the little boy said, Jesus Christ is coming back and boy is he mad. And so... So that's verse 9 when he's going to dash him. Of course, we understand that Jesus Christ rules and reigns right now from heaven. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. We as believers, we know that. We understand that. The rest of the world just hasn't figured it out yet. When he comes back, oh boy, there won't be any doubt. There won't be any, uh, there won't be any rebelling then. So what I want to do is I want to look at this verse. Not, I don't want to do violence to the context, but I want to look at this verse and think of it as a timeline. Okay? So you've got verse 7, the first coming of Christ. You've got verse 9, the second coming of Christ. And you've got verse 8, that time in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, which puts us living 
in Psalm 2.8. Notice that last part of the verse, the uttermost parts of the earth, and that great agreement that has with the scope of the Great Commission, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we are living right now in Great Commission time, the church, our churches, the churches of God have been given the commission to go and to preach the gospel to every creature, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and to teach them all things. And so right now, I believe this verse is where we are living. We are living in the time when we need to ask God for the souls of the heathen as far away even as the uttermost parts of the earth. So... Using this verse as my outline, I want to shift our thinking to the topic of world missions and the importance of not only preaching the gospel among the nations, but the importance of prayer when it comes to seeing the gospel both take root and bear fruit. And so point number one is ask of me. Now in this verse, as I mentioned, I believe we see God the Father directing his son to ask him for things. And I'm reminded of the life of Christ when I think about this. You know, Jesus Christ lived a very busy life. Traveling all over the place, all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you know, he's all over. He's up in Galilee, he's going across the Sea of Galilee, he's crossing Jordan, you know, he's all over the place, constantly thronged by people, dealing with people, sitting down, even taking time for the woman at the well. And, and yet, despite the fact that Jesus Christ lived what we would consider a crazy, busy lifestyle, we see verses like this, Mark 135. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, He went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. We see Jesus Christ taking time to pray. And Jesus lived such a life of prayer that his disciples asked him one thing. It's recorded in Luke 11, 1. It says, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And notice what they did not say. They did not say, Lord, Teach us to preach. Oh, if we can just preach like you, that Sermon on the Mount, that was so great. You know, blessed are the peacekeepers, blessed are the poor. If we can just preach like you, Lord, we can go and conquer the world. No, they didn't say that. Notice they didn't say, Lord, teach us to give. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, very giving, you know, always giving of himself. He's feeding the 5,000, he's feeding the 4,000. When the woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment, he said, virtue has gone out of me. You know, he's giving his time, he's always doing that. And yet, the disciples never once say, Lord, teach us to give. They never said, Lord, teach us to study. Though Jesus Christ, a very studied man, when he's tempted in the wilderness of the devil, he rebukes the devil three times, you know, quoting scripture every time. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come and tempt him and try to catch him in his words, he would always use, like, you know, it is written, have ye not read, and would use scripture to rebuke them. And yet the disciples never said, Lord, teach us to study like you do so that we can own the Pharisee. No, they didn't say that. And notice they didn't say, Lord, teach us to work. Teach us to work. And Jesus Christ, you know, as a child understood he must needs be about his father's business and and spent three and a half years. They say that uh, Buddha taught for 45 years. Aristotle taught for 35 years. Socrates taught for 30 or something years. And Jesus Christ taught for three and a half years. And you look how his teachings have impacted the world far beyond any of these other men with the amount of time that they had. And yet, his work there, dying on the cross, one of the last things that he says, it is finished. Completing the work that God had sent him to do, always fulfilling the will of the Father. And praise the Lord that we rest in the finished work of Christ tonight, not in our own works, is salvation by grace through faith in what Christ has done, not in what we have done. 
And notice the disciples did not say, Lord, teach us to work. Teach us to do all these things that you know. What did they say? They said, Lord, teach us to pray. To pray. Why? Because they saw that the power of the Spirit in the life of Christ was a direct outflow of his constant prayer and communion with God the Father. All of the working, all of the giving, all of the study, all of the the, uh, preaching, it was all an overflow of that prayer life that he had and that communion that he had with God the Father. And the disciples saw it. In three and a half years, they saw where the power came from. Now, Jesus did not rebuke them for asking him to teach them that. You know, he could have said something along the lines of, oh, you, yeah, you foolish mortals, you can't pray like me. I'm the son of God. I mean, no, he didn't say that. No, Jesus, when he was on earth, he modeled what was possible and taught them that they could not only do what he did, but that they would actually do greater things than him. It's recorded in John 14, 12. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And yet, so, the question comes up. If we can do the works of Jesus, and even greater works than Jesus, remember, Jesus rose the dead, right? He brought people back from the dead. We can do greater works than Jesus. Why is it that so often in our Christian lives, we seem to lack power? Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we'll start in verse 14. The disciples had this exact instance come up. And they asked the question, basically, why? Why is it that we lack power? And so let's take a look at this Matthew chapter 17. And one of the things that we need to know, I'm going to start in 14, but one of the things we need to know is that the first half of this chapter is the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So you've got Peter, James, and John coming down from seeing the Lord in his glory, and then all of a sudden this happens here in verse 14. Let's start reading. It says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Notice the question is basically, why do we lack power? Why is it that we lack power? Verse 20, and this is really tough. This is is a tough thing to swallow. Jesus just tells tells them the truth. Verse 20, and Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Now, what do we want Jesus to say right here? Because we don't want to hear this, right? Because we're, we, we can put ourselves easily in the shoes of the apostles, right? We don't want the charge laid entirely at the disciples' feet. No, we want Jesus to say something like, well, you know, it wasn't the will of the Father for this child to be healed, healed right now. Or we, or we want him to say something like, well, you guys don't understand. This is a medical condition and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, or, some, you know. or we want him to say something like, well, the father of this child is in sin and he's committed such wicked sin and that's why this kid is, you know, that's what we want to hear, right? We want something other than the disciples taking the blame for this. But that's not what Jesus says. He lays it entirely at their feet because of your unbelief. He goes on to say, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall 
remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And then he throws in a, verse 21, he throws in a caveat. How be it this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And that's, uh, that's an important thing to think about. How often do we pray and fast for the things that we need when we have things uh, that we need? But let's think about this. So the disciples... Here they are, again, they've just come down from a literal mountaintop Christian experience, right? Probably the pinnacle of Christian experience. You remember when you first got saved? How great it was? You're just like, you know, everything just seemed awesome and everything just seemed to come so easy and you could read your Bible for like 10 hours a day and it was like super easy and you could like pray all the time and it was always exciting and stuff. And, and then as you mature in the faith, you know, these sometimes things start to get a little more difficult. And it seems like, well, those things that were so easy when I was first saved, now all of a sudden it seems like it takes a lot more oomph to kind of get it going. Well, the disciples here, they, uh, you've got to remember what, what exactly had happened. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus had sent the disciples out. And uh, they went out and, and uh, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, as it says, and they're healing people, and they're casting out devils, and they're having this great experience. Again, they go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, at least Peter, James, and John do, and they see the Lord in his glory. And then the very next story is, everything's like falling apart, right? What happened? How did this happen? Everything was going so great. And in Luke's account, it talks about how he sent out the 70, and the 70 come back, and they're all excited, and they're like, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. And if you remember, he did rebuke them. He said, don't rejoice because the devils are subject unto you, paraphrasing, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And uh, so what we see, I believe we see, is that pride had seeped into their lives, right? Everything's going so well, and now all of a sudden they start getting a big hit. Remember what the disciples were always fussing and fighting about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Lord, who's going to sit at your right hand and sit at your left hand? And th- Remember? And I think what happened is pride seeped in, and that pride turned into unbelief. As they took their eyes off of Jesus and started putting their eyes on him. Because what did they say again, uh, the account of the 70? Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. Well, they say in Jesus' name, but the devils were never subject unto them. They were always subject unto Jesus. And somehow the disciples had taken their eyes off of Jesus and gotten their eyes on themselves... And in doing so, they lost all their power. Lost it. And they couldn't do it. And they couldn't cast out this devil. I can see James and Peter and John. And, and Peter's taking a look at them. And he's pushing James over. Like, you get this one. And James is like, no. And he's like, like trying to get John over there. And, John, you know? and they're like, man, this kid, this, this kid's got it bad. And they couldn't do it. They'd lost power. And so, and Jesus says, because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. And so let me illustrate belief for you really quickly. I think this will help. This is the best illustration I've ever heard about belief. I didn't, I didn't make this up. I heard another preacher preach this, but it, it's really good. Imagine you're going through tough financial times. And I, and I pray to God this never happens to anybody in this room. But imagine you're going through tough financial times, and uh, you've gotten behind on your mortgage payment. If you don't own a home, imagine you own a home. And um, the bank calls you up and says, hey, it's been a couple of months since you made a payment. You know, we are, we're not going to put up with this. You either bring us all the money for the uh, loan that you owe us tomorrow or bring the keys to the house. We're done. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, no, what am I going to do? You know, I don't, I don't, you, you've already been struggling just to put food on the table. Uh, there's no way you don't have the money. There's no way you can come up with the money. Uh, your family's going to be out on the street. What are you going to do with all your stuff? You know, and you're totally stressed out and I find out about it, and I'm your good friend, so I call you up. And I say, hey, I've heard about the issue with your house. I'm so sorry about this. I know this is a stressful time for you and your family, but uh, I want to let you know that my rich uncle died 
a little while back. And he left me millions of dollars. And so if you will come down tomorrow to the bank with me, I will pay off your loan. What is your reaction going to be? Well, it's going to depend on whether you believe me or if you don't believe me. If you believe me, it'll probably be something along the lines of, we're saved, that's great, Josh is going to pay off our loan, he's got the money, you know, you couldn't wait to get down to the bank tomorrow, you'd be there banging on, trying to knock down the door, you know, come on, let's get this taken care of, you know, get this settled. But, if you didn't believe me, oh, he's probably lying. Who is a rich uncle anyway? You know, he's just saying that just to make us feel good, you know, he probably doesn't even have any of it. You know, you probably wouldn't even go down to the bank tomorrow, though I would be standing there cash in hand, ready to pay off the loan. And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. Why did the disciples lack power? Because of their unbelief. And he says, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? If you want, I mean, if you knew my father like I know my father, and you knew the things that, that the impossibility of seeing my dad get saved, if you knew how foolish it seemed from my, even my perspective, and yet to see God answer that prayer, he moved a mountain. God moved a mountain, you know, just like when all sinners are saved. A mountain was moved. And it's not not because I had such great faith per se, but I did believe God in a sense. So there's some to that. But notice that if we can move mountains by faith, why do we lack power? Why do we lack power? Because there's been times I've prayed and I haven't, God hasn't answered my prayer. What's the reason? Well, you know, sometimes we obviously we know we need to pray according to the will of the Father. Sometimes that is the instance. But sometimes uh, it is because we lack belief. And then sometimes James goes on to teach more about this. He says, ye lust and have not, in James 4, 2 through 3. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. And so... Sometimes our problem, the reason why we don't see mountains moved, why we don't see our lost loved ones saved, why we don't see the gospel affect them like it has affected us, is because we're not asking. It's because we're not asking God to save them, and we're not serious about it in any event. And you have not because he asked not. You know, I'm ashamed to say there's been times in my life where there's been a prayer request that has fallen on my heart, whether it be like healing for some sick saint or, or again, salvation for a lost loved one, and I haven't even prayed it. I've thought, God will never answer that prayer. And I don't even pray it because I don't want to see my prayer not answered, right? And then he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. You know, too often, how many times are we praying for things that we really don't need, but we just want you know, I mean, that's one of the things that we've learned while on deputation. We really don't need as much as we thought we need, you know. We really don't. We just need, what, shelter, clothing, food. We're pretty good. We're actually pretty good. So then what then are we to ask of God? You know, what is the purpose of this call to prayer? When we understand that we have to pray in the will of the Father and that we're not to pray uh, for things that are just to consume our, on our own lusts, what is the purpose of his call then in Psalm 2 to ask Ask of me. Why is God saying ask of me? And that brings me to point number two, the heathen. 
So the Lord Jesus Christ gave one prayer request during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 9, 38, he said, Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And while prayer is the means that God uses to provide for our needs, there's nothing wrong with praying for your needs. Jesus taught that. Give us this day our daily bread, you know, for example. We need to recall that prayer is not a selfish thing. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, notice first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And no doubt you've heard the acronym JOY, Jesus, others, you, talking about the order that we're supposed to put people in our lives. And it was William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, who, too ill to be able to attend their annual conference, telegraphed in his message to be read to the gathered crowd of Salvationists. To the thousands gathered, the moderator read the one-word telegraph. Others. Others. No doubt you've heard this preached ad nauseum. Why is it that God, when he saves us, he doesn't just take us up into heaven? And why is it that we don't just go, you know, why? It's because of others. Because there are people out there that need the gospel preached to them. You have lost loved ones. You need to share the gospel with them. You have lost loved ones that need to be prayed for and labored for in prayer. You've got, you know, there are people that are sick that need help. You know, the saints need to be ministered. It's because of others. Others, that's, that's why God leaves us here, to be his hands and his feet, to be ambassadors of Christ. But if we are to have the power where we are able to ask God for the needs that we need to see his will be done, our prayers are to be rooted in an abiding life in Christ. And so turn over to John 15. Let's look at John 15. We'll break this down quickly. John 15, verse 7. We're going to look at John 15, verse 7 and 8. And I just want to break this down really quickly. And don't worry, point 3 goes a lot faster than point 1 and 2. John 15, verse 7. Because, as I mentioned in my, uh, in my prayer, as I pray, I, I commonly know this. I think it's John 15, 5. It talks about how Jesus Christ says, without me, ye can do nothing. Oh, no, that's the one that's, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abideth. Yeah, for without me, ye can do nothing. John 15, 5, just a couple of verses previous to that. And so, if we are going to see souls saved, if we're going to see the heathen reached with the gospel, we need to understand that we can't do it without Jesus. And so, John 15, 7 through 8 says, if ye abide in me... And my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So looking at verse 7, I see three things. I see two conditional statements and one unconditional statement. The first conditional statement, if ye abide in me. And I believe that this is best illustrated by the man George Mueller. If you know anything about George Mueller, he was a man who built five orphanages by faith. On faith, right? He didn't ask a man for anything, for no money or whatever. He would only ever go to God the Father and pray to God for his needs. And uh, what he, one of the, his philosophy was that he was not going to do anything he wanted, if you understand what I'm saying. He would have no personal ambition. And what he would only do, he would seek the will of the Lord. God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do today? And he would not do anything that was what he felt was his own personal ambition because he wanted to do the will of the Father, right? And so one of the things that he did when he first started taking his uh, church, which this is his personal conviction, and he didn't say anybody has to do this, uh, and neither am I, but uh, when he uh, first uh, started pastoring his church, 
he uh, didn't take a salary. He wouldn't take a salary. He said, just put a box in the back of the auditorium, and whatever the people want to give, they can put in there. And all he asked was that the men would open the box, empty the box every week, so that him and his wife would be able to, uh, to live off of whatever the people give. Well, uh, what happens, though, as these things tend to happen, is the men would forget. They'd forget to empty the box. And so two weeks would go by, three weeks would go by, and in s- all he had to do was just go and say, hey, can you, just, can you open the box and give me the money? That's all he had to do, right? He could have just went and asked the men to go and open the box, but he wouldn't do it because he believed that he would only go to God the Father for his needs. And so instead, he would go home and he would pray, God, provide for my needs. You know, you have said that you'll take care of my needs. Please, Lord, help me. And, you know, can you imagine after missing uh, the, the box, the box not being opened, and you're out of money or whatever, or you're getting really low on money, and then they forget again, and now you've got a whole nother until next Sunday before you get a chance, and you're just, you know, you're praying. You're literally praying, God, please have them open up the box and give me the box. Can you imagine that? This is what George Mueller said. He said, though he may have gone down to his last morsel of bread, or though he may have gone down to his last little cinder to heat his modest apartment for him and his wife, he never once went without. Never once. There's a story, a really famous story about George Mueller, just to, just to I've, got, I've got to share this. Uh, there's a story about when he first started his orphanage, and you've got, uh, you can imagine he had maybe 50 to 100 orphans, I remember what it was, something like that, and uh, they were out of food. They didn't have any food. Maybe you've heard this before. And uh, the workers came to him, and they were like, you know, Brother Mueller, we don't have any food, we're out of food. And uh, he was like, all right, we'll just have, the, have them all sit down and set the table, and, uh, and I will pray for the food. And the, they're like, no, you don't understand. We don't have any food. He's like, I don't know. No, just, just do that, and, uh, and that's what we'll do. We'll pray, and we'll thank God for the food. So you can imagine the scene. You know, you've got 50 or 100 orphans in this big hall, and they're all sitting down, and they've got their table placements, and there's no food on the table. There's, you, know, you don't see any food. And George Mueller stands up, and he prays, and he thanks God for the food. And as the story goes, as he finished praying... A knock comes on the door, and a food cart had broken down right outside the door. Hey, our cart broke down. We got all this food. It's going to spoil. Do you guys need it? And so there you go. And they ate. And they ate. This is what George Mueller said about a life of uh, abiding in Christ. He said, if you're going to live this life where you never ask a man for anything, but you only go to God the Father for your needs, you cannot live a life of sin. You cannot. Because to live a life in sin, it's to cut your throat. It's to sever the lifeblood of where it is that your needs are met. And so, second thing we see, my words abide in you. So the first condition is we need to abide in Christ. The second condition is my words abide in you. And what is this talking about? Well, I believe it's talking about reading the Bible. I believe it's talking about memorizing the Bible. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But I believe it's talking about more than that. I believe it's talking about living the very words that are on these pages and doing the things that Jesus has given us to do. And so, wasn't it James who said, be not hearers of the word only, but doers. And so, if, his, if we can abide in Christ and his words abide in us, that's when we notice the third statement in John 15, 7... Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Is unconditional. Unconditional. Notice the great agreement with Matthew 17, 20 that we talked earlier. Notice Jesus again saying, the question being, do we believe that? Do we believe that we can ask whatever we want, whatever it is that we need to, if you will, get the job 
done to see souls saved, to see people healed, to see lives restored, whatever it is that, that the greatest need, the need of the hour is, do we believe that, that it, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you? And then verse 8, notice the purpose. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And so the purpose of this great power is the, for the glory of God. Because that's what it is, you know, you, you ever remember in the Bible where it talks about how when one sinner repents, all of heaven uh, rejoices, and uh, do you think that's because that one guy managed to, you know, he gets to skip out on hell and they're so happy that, no, it's because God gets all the glory, because salvation's by grace, right, and, and through faith, and this guy is, uh, is, uh, is a trophy of grace and, and a glorifying to God. And so, notice that herein is God, my Father, glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And so what is he talking about fruit? What is that? I mean, I think that could be talking about the fruit of the Spirit in one aspect. Because, um, you know, that what is that? The peace, love, joy, all these different things. I believe that Christian that's manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, that's the kind of person who, when they go and they preach the gospel to somebody, that's the kind of person that people are like, they're looking at him and they're like, man, that guy is weird. You know? <laughs> like, what is up with that guy? But when they go and they preach the gospel and you're manifesting those fruits of the Spirit, that's when the word has such power. When, it, when people see that your walk matches your talk, that you seriously believe what you're saying, that's when people really see it. That's when the Christian becomes, if you will, a sermon in shoes, as the song says. But I believe it's also talking about something else. Notice Jesus' prayer request. Matthew 9, 38, I think it was. Um, uh, send forth laborers into the harvest. What do you harvest when you go out? What do we harvest? Do we harvest dirt? Do we harvest uh, sticks? Do we harvest, no, we harvest fruit? You pick the fruit. When it's harvest time, that's what you do. You go and you get the fruit. And so I believe that fruit is talking about souls, bringing souls in. You know, you get out the sheaves and bring them in and compel them to come into the kingdom. That's talking about souls. When you think about it, when, we, you know, 100 years from now, we'll all be dead and we'll all be gone and um, all of our stuff, someone else alone, Right? And eventually it's all going to burn, right? When, you know, I mean, everything's going to burn. All of your houses, you have houses and lands and cars and money. You can't take any of it with you. Nothing, not one thing. What's the one thing you can take to heaven with you? A soul. Souls. Your children, your grandchildren, loved ones, you know, your father, your mother, your... That's what you can take to heaven. What is this fruit that God's talking about? Of bringing it in, of praying for laborers that, that God may get the glory, that ye may bear much fruit. So, if we are to have that power that is required to see the heathen come to Christ, we need to remember that our prayers would be rooted in abiding the life of Christ. And so notice... We abide in Christ, and if his words abide in us, we can ask whatever we will, because our will will be God's will. Amen? If we're abiding in Christ and his words are abiding in us, that is when we know that our will is matching with God and that we're praying in the will of the Father. And the things that we will are going to bear much fruit. And so we see a total dependence on God in both work and prayer for the purpose of the saving of the souls of the heathen. And we have all the resources in heaven at our disposal. Whatever you want. What is it that is keeping that lost loved one of yours from being saved? Is it alcohol? 
like it was with my father? Is it, you know, I don't know, is it, what, what is it? What is the thing that is keeping them back, that is keeping, is it pride? You know, my dad confessed that he has pride to me today. He's like, I was so proud, I was so selfish. You know, I mean, what is it that is keeping them from coming to God? We have all the resources at, in heaven to make sure that the job gets done to accomplish our task. And so point number three, the uttermost parts. And this is the part of verse that is really striking to me. Because relative to the eastern time zone where we live, we live in Cincinnati, Thailand is 12 hours ahead of us there, which kind of makes it the uttermost parts of the, of the world. And this is what I want you to think about. Thailand is a country where something like 95% of the population is Buddhist. Only 1% of the people are Christian. There's something like 32,000 Buddhist temples in this land. Thailand, about the size of California, has double the population, 66 million people. So 32,000 Buddhist temples in a place about the size of California. In contrast, America, continental America, has about 6,000 to 10,000 independent Baptist churches. Okay? About, and that's, of course, anything that calls itself an independent Baptist church. But still, in contrast, I was doing some research trying to figure out things like, you know, where are churches in Thailand and stuff like that. And, and I've recently found that in Thailand, amongst the Thai people, there are 33 independent Baptist churches in Thailand. There are literally a thousand times more temples. It's a dark land. It's a dark land. And think about this with me. God the Father said to his son to ask him for the heathen in the uttermost. Christ through his church is calling and sending men where? To the uttermost. If we abide in Christ and ask him for the heathen in the uttermost... What has God promised to do? He says in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And I get a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father as he's pleading with God, Father, please send someone to Thailand. Send them to the heathen as he's begging and pleading for the souls of those that are lost that need to hear the gospel. But as your pastor read just earlier, Romans 10, 14 through 15, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Do you think that there are people in, in uh, parts of the world that have never heard the name of Christ? I know there are. I know. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. One of the things that's interesting about Thailand in their culture is they're very weird about their feet. They think feet are unclean or, or whatever and stuff. And so, like, if you go into a temple, you have to take your shoes off. If you go into a house, you have to take your shoes off. And, and uh, they, they don't like feet. And one of the things, uh, if you are to show the bottom of your foot like that, that's very insulting. That would be a huge insult uh, to the Thai people. So we were instructed, like, don't cross your legs, don't sit with your leg up and stuff like that, because if somebody sees the bottom of your foot, they may get uh, insulted. When we were over, we were um, uh, at a, a missionary's house, and uh, it was hot, because in Thailand, it's always hot. There's two seasons in Thailand, wet and dry. It's always hot. <laughs> and uh, we were in the missionary's house, and he was going over to a fan. There was a fan over here. And on the fan, on the stand, there were buttons. And he had his shoes off, of course, because you take your shoes off when you go into houses. And he went over with his foot to go in to turn the, the fan on. And as he's going over there, he's like, oh, yeah, you guys were Thai. I wouldn't be doing this. But you're just Americans. And so he turned, turned the fan on, right? And so notice what our verse says. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. 
You know, even, even just without knowing that, you would think, how beautiful are the lips? You know, how beautiful are the faces, right? How be- but no, God says, how beautiful are the feet of them? Isn't that great how God works? The very thing that the Thai people despise the most, right, are the thing that God says, that's beautiful. That's what I, that's what I like to see, the feet of them that go and bring the glad tidings of good things. And, you know, sometimes people, they'll come up to me and they'll say, but Josh, isn't it such a great sacrifice to go? I mean, you've got five kids, and we got one on the way now. We've got a sixth one coming. Isn't this a great sacrifice to sell everything you own and to live in an RV and try, drive all over the country? And, and, you know, isn't stuff? You know, it was David Livingston who said, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Imagine, imagine if the president of the United States showed up here, you know, and he came and, and he, uh, and you see him walking in with the Secret Service or something like that, and he came and, and he came up to me and he's like, Josh Johnson, uh, I have some uh, task for you to go do in Timbuktu or something like that, and he pledged all the resources of America at my disposal, right? All of its wealth, all of its military power, you know, the, the, uh, got the CIA, the FBI, whatever, you know, whatever I need to get the job done. What would we think? We'd think, wow, you know, Josh Johnson must be a pretty important guy to be able to get that sort of backing from the president, right? How much more? The heavenly king who has commissioned us to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he has promised us, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I'm with you always. How much more do? How much more should we should we uh, uh, realize how great of a thing? I mean, and what does he promise? All the resources of heaven at our disposal, whatever we need to get the job done, whatever we need. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we seriously and truly believe that? You know, I think that one of the you know, and I understand that. Um, you know, people say we're in the Laodicean age. It's a time of apostasy, and, and that's the mark, the final mark of the age and, and stuff like that. Well, it doesn't have to be right here, you know. I mean, maybe in a general sense, yeah, but, you know, why can't we have a little revival right here, right now? You know, there's no reason. There's nothing in the Bible that says we can't have revival now. There's nothing in the Bible that says that we can't see some great church planning movement or something, in, even in America. But it is my prayer that God would give me the heathen in the uttermost parts of the world, that I may bear much fruit and therefore bring much glory to God. It was Paris Reedhead, and, and he's not a Baptist, but uh, he had one sermon that uh, I liked. It was called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And it was Paris Reedhead talking about ten shekels in a shirt, and, and his whole point was humanism and how uh, Christianity, how we, how we do things for humanism. You know, and, and, uh, and he talked about how he was a missionary to Africa. And he went to Africa. And uh, he thought that if I just, you know, it's a dark place. If I just go over here and preach the gospel, people are going to get saved and there's going to be all this great stuff, you know, and he surrendered to go and, and to do all this. And, and he got over there and he found out that, you know, men are just alike everywhere. They love their sin. They hate God. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And I uh, didn't see the results that he was expecting. And he got kind of bitter. And he got angry with God. He's, he's telling, saying this in that sermon. And he said he prayed to God. He said, God, why did you even send me here? These people, they don't care about you. They don't care about the gospel. They don't care about their own souls and stuff. Like, like, why am I even here? Like, what's going on? And he said that it was like God spoke to him and said, I didn't send you here for them. I sent you here for me. For me. 
And when he realized that the whole purpose of the call is for the glory of God, it changed his perspective. And then guess what? People started getting saved. <laughs> you know, people started getting saved. But it's my prayer that God would give me the heathen in the uttermost parts of the world that I may bear much fruit and therefore bring much glory to God. But I cannot do it without you. What do I need? 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. If everybody in the building would like to stand, bow, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, let's have the, the musicians would come. I want you to think about the things that we preach today, tonight. I want you to think about somebody in your life, somebody who's lost, somebody who you love, who maybe you haven't prayed for in the way that you need to. Maybe you're lost here today. Maybe you're the one who's being prayed for. You know what they've said? They've said that everybody's either a missionary or a mission field. And I want you to think about it. If there's somebody who's on your heart, I want you to come and come to the altar and pray for them right now. You know, God laid my father on my heart, and in obedience I prayed. I asked God, please save my father, and he did. And so you can have great assurance that if you will ask of him, ask of him, you can see your loved ones saved. I believe it. I believe God is in the business of saving souls. He wants to save people. He wants to save sinners. So will you come and pray today? And if you're lost, come up here. We'll deal with you too. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free.